Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation. And if that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. I am Zach Crum, and joining me for today's episode is Clay Rains. Clay received his bachelor's degree in biology from Shepherd University and his master's in fisheries and aquaculture from Mississippi State. He is currently completing his PhD in fisheries resource management at the University of West Virginia, while also working as a research technician at the USGS National Fish Health Research Lab. Clay has a broad array of experience pertaining to fish ecology and conservation, aquaculture, molecular and microbiology, and has most recently been conducting research on blotchy bass syndrome and black bass. Welcome to the podcast, Clay. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Glad you're here. Excited to hear about some of the stuff that you've been up to. I know we had a chance to meet recently, so that was exciting. But now we get to talk about all the other cool stuff you've done. Yeah, it's always good to have multiple platforms. It feels like a totally different experience. I feel like I'm out of my element. <laughs> no, you're going to do great. These are always so much fun because it, it's kind of just one big conversation. And I like the podcast because it really helps to get people's individual stories out there about what they've done in fishery science and how they got involved and you know what direction they're heading in the field. So I'm excited to hear your story as well. So the first question I'll ask is, what was it that first got you interested in fishery science? So that probably depends on who you ask. The long version probably starts when I was three or four years old, like most people that were just kind of had a weird attraction to water and just always found myself playing in streams and getting wet when I shouldn't. But in reality, it changed really pretty late into undergrad. I was the kind of kid that submitted my application to the Coast Guard and culinary school into the pre-med program all in the same day and one handful of envelopes. <laughs> so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I was approaching my like junior year and my advisor was kind of like, hey, so pre-med students don't actually drop immunology so that they can take ichthyology. <laughs> and I kind of had to have an adjustment and realize that I was trending a different direction than where I thought I was going to be. And turns out I probably should have hit that immunology class sooner rather than later, judging by what I'm doing now. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I kind of was, I guess, an early bloomer that took a, took a break and became a late bloomer as far as getting into the field. But yeah, I um, wouldn't change anything about it, but it was a very weird exposure to the fish sciences. And I worked a couple of really influential internships that kind of totally changed the direction of my life and where I ended up. That's really cool. Yeah, you never know like how your course will change as you're as you're coming through your undergraduate experience and like it seems like there's so many possible influences in terms of what you can do with your career and it's cool that you had that and it kind of guided you into this field. It's a small field, you know, so it's really cool that like people get pushed into this somehow some way. For sure. Yeah. No, I mean and you know the two top candidates I thought I was going to go to vet school and my sister is a practicing veterinarian and I could not do what she's doing, at least not as far as like being, you know, a production vet. I do not have what it would take. Yeah. And my best friend is a practicing physician, works in oncology and radiology, and I couldn't do that either. I just know what my aptitudes are and uh, 
I definitely chose out of the three choices that I felt like I was facing, I went the right way. And I still like to still support the Coast Guard, still like to cook, but I think I, <laughs> I think I chose correctly. Yeah, fish just came first amongst all those things. Yep, exactly. That's awesome. Well, my next question was actually, what did you want to do as an undergrad and how has that changed? But it seems like, you know, you've really kind of hit that right on the head here. So yeah, I mean, yeah, because that, you know, I was one of those that, you know, I didn't go to a big state school. Um, I had very limited exposure to like fish management as an undergrad compared to at least compared to like, you know, a lot of the bigger state programs. Yeah. And so I kind of thought, you know, at least for state, biology, I kind of thought first and foremost of law enforcement. So there was a very strong part of me that kind of wanted to go into like local fish and game wild enforcement and be like a natural resource police officer. Um, And that's still kind of one of the first things that jumps to my mind when I think of like the DNR as an agency. But um, but yeah, so that that was also a a top consideration for a little while. But I think I uh, like fish a little bit more than I like dealing with people and so <laughs> kind of had to had to make that choice too. I had the same thought when I was coming up through through my undergrad early on. I was like, you know, law enforcement is interesting. Like, I don't know. Maybe it could be something, you know, protecting the resource and everything. And I, I'm right there with you. You know, I love the animals too much and, and the people, you know, are very important, but I just like the fish a little bit more. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's just, that's just how it goes. Aptitude's aptitude. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So what was your first experience actually getting to work like in the field um, with with fisheries? So I guess realistically, I mean, I really did have a rock star professor in undergrad, um, which exposed me to a lot more than I probably should have at a fairly small liberal liberal arts school. Um, Dr. Peter Vila, he was really instrumental in kind of directing a lot of my interests. And, you know, he he exposed us to a lot. We got to work in the field with um, West Virginia DNR actually came and we sampled fish. We did backpack electroshocking. We did some boat electrofishing and on the Potomac, right on the edge of campus. And then we also worked with Allen Temple at the NCTC because we're so closely located in Shepherdstown to the NCTC. And, you know, I kind of got to learn from like the best of the best as far as like electrofishing goes. And so I kind of waded directly into the deep end, at least as far as that stuff went. So yeah. I had uh, really taken my first electrofishing training course before I'd ever taken any kind of fish management course. So I kind of did the topsy-turvy entry, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's how it goes when you're, you start out pre-vet, pre-med, and then end up in a different program. You kind of, yeah. you wait, you wait in from the opposite end of the pool. Well, it's great. You had that opportunity early on. Cause I know like it can be hard to get that experience like that first, you know, initial experience that you can throw in the resume and get you internships and so forth going further in your career. So that's cool that they, you kind of got that jump start. Oh yeah. No, I was, I was very fortunate. I was afforded a lot of opportunities and I put myself out there a lot, but I, you know, walked blindly into a whole lot, a lot of times too. So, you know, there were many times when I didn't really know what I was wanting to do. And there was a local fish hatchery that I went and was just, you know, old school knocking on doors and handing out resumes to anywhere that had like vaguely science sounding jobs and, you know, showed up to a production hatchery wearing khakis and dress shoes holding resumes. And I did not get a call back, uh, but, uh, you know, so I'm sure they did not think that I would have been a fit, but, you know, I was trying everything. So, yeah, I, I really did get a lot of chances that I was very, very fortunate to get exposed to. Uh, luck, luck plays a lot of it, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. no complaints. 
Yeah. So then it seemed like you really kind of grew from there, at least in, in terms of your career after getting your master's degree at, at a larger state school. It seems did that experience there kind of make up for what you might have missed during your undergraduate. It did. Um, it definitely did, because, you know, Mississippi State is a very hook and bullet program. Uh, and so I was very fortunate to grad school really was such a pressure cooker for me as kind of a person. I really feel like I came out of grad school as like a totally differently formed person, you know, personally and professionally and academically. And I, you know, this is an example I always like always pass on to interns or people that are like working with me for like a short period of time. It's really good to like avoid that like kind of academic inbreeding because I grew up in the mid-Atlantic where fall overturn is just another way to introduce nutrients to the system. You get kind of this pulse of nutrients when the temperature, and you know, the lake or whatever stratifies. And in the South, that's just how you kill a whole pond full of catfish. <laughs> and so like, you know, the whole, the exact same mechanism, the exact same context had like a totally different end game. And so that was like hugely, just little things like that were hugely instrumental and kind of like shaping what, what I guess serves as a global perspective for me. Yeah. So yeah, it was, yeah, it really did uh, afford me a lot of opportunities and I got to kind of see, you know, I came in with a very strong biology background, but not so much management, leaned heavily into management and fishery science courses and statistics courses while there. And then, you know, kind of bounced around a little bit more after that. So yeah, yeah. kind of, I don't know, I'd like to think I'm a, a fully rounded out professional at this point, but I'm, I'm certain every day I find more growing to do. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something to be said for broadening your horizons, I think, and experiencing new geographical areas and the fisheries within them is, is huge. So yeah, I, I think it's really cool. You got that opportunity to go South and then now come back up back to, back to West Virginia, right? Well, and I, I use this story all the time too, because, you know, today's actually my anniversary, uh, four years oh, wow. today. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But the sad thing is if I could read a map, I would have never met my wife. I was dealing with competing offers from Michigan state, Mississippi state, and Michigan State just seemed so far away and it just didn't seem like it was a possibility for me. So then I picked a school 13 and a half hours away from my hometown and it was only visiting my wife's family and driving through East Lansing that I realized it was a seven hour shorter trip and uh, (laughs) I would have never taken a job in Chattanooga, which was halfway home and I would have uh, never consequently met my wife. Wow. Yeah. Everything happens for a reason. I'm telling you. I see it sounds cheesy, but it really is true, true, I think. I've been very fortunate. That's just one of the reasons. My own stupidity even worked out in my favor. So So what was it that led you to doing your PhD at West Virginia? How'd you make your way back up? Um, Well, that was kind of a long process, but um, I had been really working on pursuing grad school under my current advisor, Pat Mazik, really since I graduated undergrad. Um. I considered doing a master's under her. I considered doing kind of like a, you know, pseudo distance learning option while doing like half and half work and doing project stuff and commuting to Morgantown. And so I kind of always remained in contact with um, Dr. Mazik for years, decade, I guess, a decade plus. And so, you know, she was always on my radar and I always on hers. And then I bounced back and worked for the West Virginia DNR for a little while and was exploring that then and got an opportunity that was a little bit more research centric 
and kind of was like, all right, this is a thing I'd like to do, but I'm really interested in finishing up and actually getting my PhD and doing some more of this kind of pseudo applied and lab-based stuff. And I got nothing but smiles and thumbs up when I suggested that. So it was, again, just kind of one of those things where, you know, multiple things fell into place and I fell into the correct lap at the right time. And, you know, that's basically all there is to it. Yeah. um, It was always a thing I wanted to do. Um, I let my six year younger sister beat me to doctor status, but, uh, (laughs) but that's okay. Hey, Um, it's not a race, you know, (laughs) that's right now. And Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, I who I work under, uh, has always said he prefers his grad students to be a little bit more grizzled. And I'm not sure if I meet that (laughs) criteria either, but I am certainly older at least. So there's that. Yeah, well, it sounds like a great fit to, to get you there. So in terms of your research, so everything is centered around, well, for the most part, around blotchy bass syndrome, right? That's where I spend a lot of my time. I, I dabble in a lot of things. I, I find a lot of things endlessly fascinating. And so that's kind of my downfall <laughs> is I dabble a little too much. But yeah, one of the bigger things I'm working on right now is blotchy bass syndrome. Uh, and it for the uninitiated, it's a condition of hyperpigmentation. This specific study is on black bass, but we've seen it in other fish. Not sure if the condition's the same across those different taxa, but this particular version is caused by a family of viruses called adomaviruses. And so they're closely related to papilloma and polyomaviruses. And so of course there's the cancer concern and there's kind of them as a family of viruses, as a model organism of sorts, just in general for studying these cancer-causing viruses. So um, that's one of the bigger things. We kind of have lived in what feels like decades now of virus research and pandemic thrown around. And so, you know, zoonotic viruses are a big concern. This isn't necessarily a zoonotic, but it's one that's kind of on the public mind. And so it's one that has been a hot button issue that we've kind of kept working on. And there aren't that many opportunities for visual identification of a virus. Uh, It's usually kind of, you know, this is usually a more lab-based diagnosis kind of situation. So we're kind of working with a unique critter to be able to visually ID something like this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's pretty apparent. I mean, I've, all the fish that I've seen, it's, it's crazy. It, it's shocking almost when you see fish with just these massive black splotches all over their body. And I've even seen some pictures of them like around their lips and things like that. So it's just, it seems like it can be anywhere on the fish, right? Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, we don't a hundred percent have a handle on how viruses transferred from fish to fish, but it is really weird to see these kind of blotches that always almost look to be fingerprint sized in areas where the fish would be handled and then areas like around their lips and their gills where they would be touched by, you know, angler hands. It's very, I don't know, totally anecdotal. We don't have any evidence of that being a, you know, a route of introduction, but it's a certainly weird. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. That is now that you mentioned most of the pictures have been around those areas where you as an angler would handle the fish. Yeah. And that's one of the, that's one of the things that we're Pictures are a thing we have plenty of. So we actually have uh, multiple efforts going on using citizen scientists. So we have two different citizen science projects that are almost competing uh, at this point. Um, So we've been working really closely with Texas Parks and Wildlife and a colleague there, Dr. Cynthia Fox-Holt. And she graciously kind of worked as a go-between to help us kind of facilitate communication with angler groups that she's been already cultivating for years and years now. And 
uh, we basically just said, hey, if you see this condition, send pictures to Cynthia. And the response has been overwhelming, uh, so overwhelming that Bass Pro Shops basically figured out that it was such a you know big development happening in Texas that they have donated uh, three $3,000 in prizes to be, you know, basically to go back through those emails and randomly award winners because they, all Cynthia did was ask and they came through, which is amazing. So that's one effort that's happening. We've got nigh on a thousand pictures at this point. Yeah. So so we get a handful, you know, get to look at images basically every day. And I've really kind of honed my search image. I know the areas to kind of key in on, or if I'm on the fence, what to really look for, if it's, you know, a yes or a no. And then we also have um, a project with uh, Angler's Atlas. They have a smartphone app called MyCatch, which basically is like a a platform for virtual tournaments. And we have one going now called the Blotchy Bass Bonanza, which runs through the end of November and free to enter, free to participate. And we're basically just collecting data internationally. Any black bass species, rock bass are also included, uh, just so it's easier to include them than to exclude them. And take pictures of fish on the link boards following the smartphone app is the simplest, you know, a couple of taps on the phone. And yeah, yeah, that's can, really convenient. You know, it's, it's amazing. It's the, the future. Cause I'm, you know, having worked in NGO world and state agency world, and now as a fed, like there's only so many of us right. and, you know, yeah. compared to possibly 300 million anglers in the U S you know, it'd be amazing to see, uh, what we could, what kind of reach we could get, you know, once we get this stuff kind of cranking. So it's really, really cool stuff to be a part of. Cool. So are there pr- prizes associated with the um, Angler's Atlas program? There as well, are. Bonanza? Yeah. So that was, um, that one was a very similarly related uh, effort. I actually, the AFS fish health section kind of spurred all of this. So I gave a presentation kind of on the early stages of the virus discovery work. And I was contacted by Bass Pro Shops and their, uh, Basically, their lead curator of all their live collections contacted me. It was like, hey, we see this in our collections. Could we, you know, can we talk more? And this was in 2020 when everything was shut down. We had, you know, no access to field crews. We rely on state agencies for so much of our stuff. And they were able to kind of work with us. And we were able to sample the living collections from Bass Pro Shops nationwide. Hmm. And then we kind of started that partnership and then, you know, we're like, Hey, this is, you know, pie in the sky. I would love a Bass Pro Shops sponsored virtual tournament. And, you know, Bass Pro Shops is like, Oh, okay. What else? And, you know, (laughs) I, you know, I've never heard what else in like this stage in my career, as far as those kinds of things. So this has been kind of a dream come true to get to do this stuff and have it come together as well as it has. Yeah. It's been, it's been a blast. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm I'm glad to hear that it, it's kind of like seamlessly coming together because so few times has that actually happened. I would so, I, mean, I would say too big to fail is basically <laughs> where we got it to be. Um, because you know yeah. it, it maybe not uh you know nothing is ever seamless, but I learned to work and network in a bunch of ways that I wasn't prepared to do because you know at times we were on calls with five different time zones getting stuff situated. Wow. So you yeah. know it, it was amazing to work with such a like a diverse and dynamic team to get this stuff going. And a lot of people that are a lot better at their jobs than me trying to do stuff for them. So it was, <laughs> yeah, always yeah. lean on the experts. Yeah. That's a massive undertaking. It's, it's impressive. Just the scale is definitely yeah. huge. Yeah, we're, it's amazing. We, um, we got reports from 
Canada, Spain, Mexico, and the United States. You know, we've gone truly international. So I was going to ask about that. Yeah, the geographic distribution in terms of fish that have blotchy bass syndrome. Is it, it seems like it's pretty much globally, or are there certain regions that have it more than others or hotspots? It definitely or? seems to be hotspots. Um, but that's so much of what we don't know. This is really kind of a case study for being able to, you know, mark spread without like monitoring fish kills, because right now we don't have any evidence that it adversely affects fish, um, just that they can get it and it can be detected. So, you know, we kind of need this baseline of do fish have it versus not have it in order to kind of even identify areas of spread. Right. So, yeah, so this is, uh, we don't really know. Um, That's kind of the whole point. Once we uh, finish up these efforts, so the Texas effort finishes at the end of the calendar year, and the Angler Atlas effort will finish at the end of November. Um, so once we kind of have a synthesis of those two data sets, we'll probably have a lot better idea um, and hopefully hopefully present a lot of it in uh, Southern Division AFS meeting. Nice. Yeah, I'll see you there. <laughs> yeah. No, That's looking cool. forward to that one too. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. So yeah, it's, so aside from distribution, do you have an idea of some of the other questions you're trying to address uh, with your research there? So we do. Um, A lot of it, there's a lot more questions than there are answers right now. Um, Yeah, yeah. Route of infection is a big one. Long-term implications as far as like, you know, does this possibly lead to tumor formation like other kinds of viruses that are similar? Does co-infection with this virus make you more susceptible to other viruses or is it the opposite? Is there like a competitive exclusion kind of situation? We're also working on uh, some stuff right now comparing microbial communities on infected fish versus uninfected fish versus areas without pigmentation on the infected fish. Um, so we'll have that stuff uh, sorted out pretty soon. Um, so this is, there's a lot of really cool questions. Differential gene expression will probably yield some results too. And that's, that's stuff that is all cooking, um, working yeah. with California to North Carolina, we're working kind of coast to coast on this stuff. So yeah, and, and there's teams of biologists where we're a couple of things that we're really interested in too are kind of the phylogeography. So being able to kind of identify, you know, our the relatedness of individual viruses between kind of geographically disparate locations like Texas and West Virginia or Eastern Shore of Maryland, and then kind of in between spots like Kentucky or Missouri or Right. So trying to kind of put that together and then people that are much smarter than me even have the capability of once we have enough of these genomes on board, can do uh, like a phylo history and basically go back through the evolutionary history of the mutations within the genome and identify kind of an origin spot and possibly, you know, areas at points in time when host jumping could have occurred. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that this work can ultimately lead to. Right. Yeah. That's, it's funny you bring that up. Cause I was interested to hear if there was like a genetic component that was being addressed, which it sounds like there, there certainly is. So that's yeah. exciting. Well, yeah. So that's one of the crazy things is we're, you know, working on getting these publications out now, but there's multiple of these viruses out there and there are species specific, but there is even variation within the same virus. So we have a, a virus for sure. That's associated with hyperpigmentation and largemouth bass. We have one that's associated with smallmouth bass, the same kind of presentation, 73% identity between the two of them. So, you know, they're very closely related, but they are different. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it makes sense that, you know, 
lack of centipede for a lot of these places, you know, or way that habitat has kind of formed over time that there's probably a different virus for each one of these black bass species, or at least there's a high likelihood that that's possible. That's probably being a little generous, but, you know, we have evidence that that could be the case. And we even have multiple viruses within one individual. So this is, this stuff is, uh, the detection capability has kind of outpaced um, what we know about it. So we're kind of right. at the point where yeah. we can, we can kind of say, Hey, we know this exists now. What? Yeah, that's cool. So is there any possibility? I mean, this may not be a question you can answer, but I'm curious if there's any possibility that it could jump between different genuses or into other um, species of fish, perhaps. Viruses do that all the time. So that's one of the things that would be interesting to know. I mean, this is a double stranded DNA virus. They're not as prone to those kinds of mutations that happen really quick and cause like kind of rapid host jumps. Like we saw, you know, with coronavirus with it being, you know, an RNA virus there, that rate of mutation is there's, you know, fewer chances to correct mistakes in that replication process, but it's not, nothing's impossible. I mean, there's a reason that viruses are one of the most ubiquitous forms of pseudo life in the universe. They're just numerous and they all behave in totally different ways. So, I mean, yeah, nothing's impossible. We haven't seen it yet, but it has almost certainly has to have happened at some point in history. Right. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about. Yeah. One day all the fish in the world just have a bunch of black spots on them. <laughs> That's not going to happen probably, yeah. right? Well, but, I, we'll see. You know, I don't know. know. <laughs> Business is good. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, yeah, you said you're planning on presenting on some of this at Southern Division. Uh, anything else to keep an eye out for in terms of uh, your research getting out there? Um, there's a lot of stuff. I've really been doing a lot of work with estrogenicity bioassays, and it's just kind of a ubiquitous component in a lot of water quality metrics. And it's kind of neat to zoom back out to that like global scale again of just the interrelatedness of all these different factors. And so it's really cool to essentially do, you know, the same assay and then have it be applied to food science or, you know, any number of different fields outside of what it feels like I do on a day-to-day basis, but work in food science or environmental quality or legislation kind of stuff that, you know, makes a real difference. It's a lot of that stuff. It's kind of mixes it up. And, you know, so I don't feel like I'm only looking at a bunch of alphabet soup and genetic code versus uh, doing other stuff. So yeah, it's, I couldn't be happier. I'm in a pretty good spot. Yeah. No, I was going to say, it, it seems like you've got a lot going on. And you said you were becoming well-rounded, I think, in the beginning, right? Or something along those lines. And after the, our discussion, it certainly seems like that's the case in terms of your skill set and everything else you've got going on. It's pretty Jack impressive. Jack of all <laughs> trades, master of none. And I would even <laughs> say all trades. I'd say very specific trades that prove to be valuable time and time again. But it's, uh, it's very impressive, your work. So excited to get to hear about some of it in February. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, there's a lot of cool stuff and it it's amazing the just the platforms that we're using are so broad. Um because like using these virtual tournaments are just a huge data set that you're collecting. And you're getting yeah, stuff yeah. like timestamps. You're getting see you can capture in one image theoretically seasonal and geographic variability, you know, just by compositing a bunch of images. You can get a real-time link distribution. And like, sure, yeah. there's, you know, sampling bias because you're only catching what you're catching. But like, you know, there's there's that with every other sampling method as well. So it's, you know, and when it comes to fish management, 
what you care about or what people are catching and it doesn't get more true to form than what they're actually catching. So yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of cool stuff and just the force multiplication alone with these virtual platforms is truly spectacular. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm sure the general public and all the fisheries biologists are excited to have some answers about what seems like it's been going on for, for many years now. Right. So it's probably exciting to get to the point where we're starting to learn more and more and more and um, right. you're, you're bringing it there. So. What advice would you give to undergraduate students or people that are just starting off, just beginning in fishery science? Um, I would say do it all because I've worked now in a wide variety of fisheries jobs. I've done aquaculture, I've done conservation aquaculture, fish management, done legislative work, and now a lot of molecular work with management implications. And I've liked a lot of it, but I found out very quickly what I hated. And, you know, you can do anything for two years, but you can't hate what you're doing. So do everything. And then, like I always tell my little brother and he never listens, find out what you hate and avoid that like the plague. And then you'll probably end up happier nine times out of ten. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as like a bad opportunity to pursue. And yeah, and I, I certainly have found out things that I don't like and things that I like more. And it, it's it's guided me. So I think that's really, really solid advice. Yeah, it's just, you know, that's one of the perks of being old is you kinda, <laughs> a couple of times you figure out some things. Yeah. All right. So then we'll go ahead and transition into our final five questions that we each that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. Sounds great. Some people say they're harder than the other questions. Some people say they're easier. <laughs> we'll see what you think. So question one, what is your favorite fish? Ooh, so that's the one I probably have thought about the most. I always used to say smallmouth buffalo because their downturned mouths just look so sad all the time. Uh, <laughs> but, but I really have come to love uh, Roanoke log perch. I just think they're a really, really pretty fish, and I wish there were more of them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Question two, uh, what is your favorite memory from your career? So, Oh, I've had so many good ones. My probably favorite memory, and not for it being a good one, but uh, we were doing nighttime boat electrofishing on a relatively uh, large impoundment in West Virginia. And we ended up damaging the prop. And by we, I mean, I ended up damaging <laughs> the prop. And we could only limp mostly in reverse but we were able to finish out our electrofishing transects with a totally limping boat motor. And it was a, a really proud moment for our lead biologist to have accomplished that. And a really uh, sad moment for my own idiocy for causing the problem in the first place. But it was kind of just another mark in uh, perseverance. So <laughs> yeah. I like that one. I don't think I'll ever forget that one. So yeah, yeah it might've, it might've sucked a little bit at the time, but I guess looking back on it, it's, it's a fond memory. So yeah, absolutely. Good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's Distance funny. makes the heart grow fonder and that counts with the chronology. So yeah, I definitely banged up a prop or two in my <laughs> day as well. So you're not alone. <laughs> awesome. So what is your dream job uh, and location? So I hesitate to say this, but I think I might be there. I'm, you know, I'm, I've always said growing up, I'm working essentially in my hometown. I said that I had a better chance than most of working my dream job in my hometown just because of the location of the Eastern Ecological Science Center and working for USGS. And if everything aligns and, you know, I get to finish out or stay for a large portion of my career, I don't know that I could do much better. So I, I think I'm in a really good spot. 
Great. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I was going to say it's uh it's it's so hard in fisheries to get a job in a, a very specific location. It's hard it's hard to dial in on one location, at least from what I've experienced. So being in that you're doing what you love and doing it in a place that you love is is incredible. So yeah, no, I like I said, there's been a lot of good fortune that's come my way, and this is no small part of that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if money was not an issue, what's one project you'd like to work on? Oh. Money wasn't an issue. When is money not an issue is a good yeah, question seriously. in and of itself. But <laughs> I um I really like just the Asian carp work in general. And I just think that there's a lot of really interesting and out like off the wall exclusion or eradication techniques that could be explored for Asian carp, particularly <laughs> in the Great yeah. Lakes. And I think that would be uh actually actually probably be saying Kopi. Huh. But, um, yeah, most, yeah. most recently. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I think there's a lot of stuff that would never fly as far as a funding source would go of, you know, just, you know, could we, could we keep them away by playing Skrillex? Could we, you know, <laughs> things like yeah. that that are totally off the wall, I think would be really fun to address. And, you know, just in general investigation of weird pathogens that we kind of might not have thought about because, you know, these are invaders. And there's got to be some silver bullet out there, and we just might not have come across it yet. So yeah, that's cool. That's a good one. That's just that's, they're just such a unique problem, and you know, unique is maybe not the right term, but they're just it's such an interesting thing. And it for doing as little work as I do on that problem, I certainly think about it a lot. Uh, yeah. So it is, you know, it's one that I just wish there was some silver bullet and you know if i had endless time and endless resources i'd absolutely yeah as long as people eradicate them (laughs) yeah i think i think it would be a really interesting thing to just kind of spend time trying to pursue all right so then if there is one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head what would it be oh okay i think i think for me it's the little stuff matters Uh, i think that you know it helps now that my world is dealing with like picograms and microliters so frequently. <laughs> so the little stuff like literally matters. But uh, when I was working as an intern, I remember power washing the ceilings in an <laughs> aquaculture building. And I remember, you know, just spider webs and dirt raining down on me and people looking at me and being like, this is, you're, you're crazy. You know, and I'm like, ah, I don't know. And then a group of potential uh, donors came through and we're walking through everything. And they're like, I don't know, man, I think we got to give this place money. Even the ceilings are clean. And, you know, <laughs> nobody told me that I needed to power wash the ceiling. It was just kind of like, ah, I'm already wet. I might as well do it. And, <laughs> you know, so the little stuff matters. Sometimes it's the little things that make the biggest difference. And whether that's attention to detail on the picogram microliter level or power washing the ceilings, yeah, that stuff matters. That's a good one. <laughs> I can't say I've ever. I might have power washed the ceiling once or twice. I don't know though. That's a pretty unique <laughs> experience. There. Yeah, it's a. I don't know. I don't necessarily wish it on anyone, but yeah, that's a. No, it certainly is certainly pretty. Uh, it stuck with me for a very long time because I think that was 2012 or 2013 that that happened. So you got so. the money. The donor. The yeah, donors yep. donated. <laughs> Yep, yeah. money came in and landed the project and yeah that's was, awesome yep pretty pretty cool stuff so yeah the ngo world is something else yeah. <laughs> awesome so that concludes the final five questions
So if our listeners would like to get in contact with you, what's going to be the best way for them to do that? Um, so the best way is probably my current email, which is crains at usgs.gov or blotchybass at gmail.com. Awesome. Sounds good. I'll have that linked down in the episode description below. If you'd like to get a hold of us at the Fisheries Podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod, or by email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by purchasing Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 193rd episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And don't forget, little things can make a big difference. <laughs>